I'm Nikki Gamble, Director of Just Imagine and host of In the Reading Corner. In this episode, I'm talking to Chinese-Australian author Shirley Ma. Shirley is best known in the UK for her novel A Glass House of Stars, which won the Children's Book Council of Australia Children's Book of the Year Award in the Younger Readers category. The story is based on Shirley's own experience of migration, and it was nominated in the UK for the Slip Carnegie Medal. Shirley's latest book, All Four Quarters of the Moon, also deals with the experience of migration, and in particular, the importance of sibling relationships as the young protagonist tries to navigate her new life. I was speaking to Shirley at the end of January, and so I was interested to find out how she had celebrated Chinese New Year and whether or not she preferred the term Chinese New Year or Lunar New Year. I prefer to use Lunar New Year because it's more of an inclusive term because we have the Vietnamese community also celebrating and other cultures as well celebrate. So I like to use Lunar. This year in particular has been absolutely wonderful. I think the community that we live in and the wider community as well outside of our Chinese community have really embraced Chinese New Year. So there've been lots of community celebrations like lion dances and just people going out and having dim sum, having family dinners. So although it's used to be one of those small things when I was younger that we celebrated, it feels like the wider community has really embraced now. I'm just so happy to see that because our culture is a culture to share. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad you had a good celebratory time. We're going to talk about your new book, All Four Quarters of the Moon. Perhaps you could introduce it and read a short section to give us a flavour of the story. So my book, All Four Quarters of the Moon, is about two sisters, older sister Beijing and younger sister Beiju, who migrate from Singapore to Australia with their family and their grandmother. And once they're there in their new country, they have to learn how to adapt to a brand new culture. So this is about how the two sisters come to embrace their new land and also how the family copes as well. And it's based on the true story of me and my little sister coming to Australia in the 80s. I'm going to read chapter one. Ama said she could tell if the mooncakes she was making that year for the mid-autumn festival would be perfect or not just by the feel of the yolk. She had peeled the salted duck egg and weighed it with her hand. It was a good egg. She passed the golden middle to her granddaughter. Oh no, said Peijing, eager not to drop it into the sink she had held on too tight. Now the yolk lay misshapen in her palm, no longer a miniature full moon. Peijing looked out the kitchen window at the real full moon, hanging so yellow and round that it almost sat on top of all the apartment buildings surrounding their own. She felt as if the moon would drop out of the sky if she so much says breathed wrong. The Guo family were very superstitious. There were things forbidden during the festival. Don't point at the moon or the goddess living there will cut your ear. Don't stare at the moon if you have recently given birth, got married, done a bad deal in business or have too much yang energy in your body. No one could ever properly explain to Beijing what this yang energy was. As the old proverb goes, replied Amar, there are no mistakes in life, only lessons. She smiled mysteriously and passed Beijing another egg yolk. Very wise. 
We'll talk a bit about Amar later. What we learn in that short reading is that the moon is important in Chinese culture, and it's important to this story also. So important that you've used it in the title and to structure the narrative. Tell us how that works. The moon in our culture is very, very significant. It dictates our calendar. We have ceremonies and special occasions celebrating the moon, like the Mid-Autumn Festival. I just wanted to take something that was so important in my own culture and just structure the book around it. So the book is broken up into four parts, which correspond with the four phases of the moon. We see the family when they arrive and how they grow and how the moon becomes full again for them at the end, even though the moon might be a bit thin in the middle when they have problems adjusting to their new land. Beijing is not sure what yin energy is, and I don't think I am either. So yin and yang, what are those energies? Oh, my goodness. This is something like my mum would tell me. Like she'd say, oh, you don't have enough yang energy, and then she'll make me a soup. And sometimes, no, no, it's the other energy, and she'll make me something else to eat. Even I am confused about which energy is which. I know one is the feminine energy and one is the masculine, and it has to be perfectly balanced or else mum makes a really bitter soup. A glass house of stars and all four quarters of the moon are rooted in your own experience. I think it's fair to say that adjustment was tough and made unnecessarily so by some of the things that happened. So I wondered whether things have changed for the better since the 1980s. Personally, for me, I find that things are really progressive these days and the communities are very supportive. But like all cyclical nature things, I guess political situations flare up once in a while, whether that be a politician that's not so friendly to our community or in the latest case with the COVID pandemic, I didn't think personally that I would ever see the posters from my childhood that were stuck on the walls, the yellow face posters ever come back. And they did. And that was a very scary time. So I just think there's always work to be done. And I feel that through writing my stories, I can foster a sense of acceptance and kindness and empathy. And that's exactly what I do want. Mm, Really important for us to be aware of those sorts of things. It is. Because um, once in a while, I think that if we're not vigilant and stamp out hatred and bigotry, that it does stand a chance of coming back. Let's talk a bit about the relationship between the two sisters. You said that it's based on your own sibling relationship. In what way? Oh, I'm probably embarrassing my little sister at this point in time because a lot of the stories are based on fact. I just remember when we were little and it was so difficult when we moved to Australia because we couldn't really speak English and we didn't really understand the culture very much. The both of us retreated into each other and I think from there we built this incredible close bond which has been ongoing and I just think of some of the beautiful stories that I remember and I just wanted to put them in a book to showcase how hard change is but also how optimistic things can be when you know you, you have a sister and you have a close bond with somebody and it's Beijing feels the responsibility for her sister but also for the adults in the family for her mother and her grandmother I'm aware that this is fiction not autobiography so I don't want to make assumptions but I wondered if you felt that weight of responsibility too 
unlike paging in the novel, I didn't have to support any of my family physically, but I felt I was forced to grow up very fast because being the eldest daughter, I was the person who spoke the best English out of everybody. So I found myself acting as a translator in very adult situations. I was only seven back then. So I just remember this clear memory of my dad going to the doctor and getting a prescription and then me at the chemist having to translate what the chemist was saying on how to take the medication. I just feel so out of depth and I feel like, oh, well, I have to grow up now because, like, I have to help my family. And I I found that was sort of like the end of a childhood I knew and the beginning of a different one. I love the way you described the experience when the family first landed in Australia. Different countries, like different people, had different scents. Singapore smelled sweet and humid and slightly rotten, like overripe tropical fruit. Australia smelled dry and dusty and a bit burned, like something had been on the fire for a very long time. That description resonated with me. Differences in temperature and scent are the first thing that I notice when I get off a plane. That sets us up for some of the other differences that the family encounter. And I wonder if you could tell us about some of the challenges, but also the good things that the children experience when they start school. In the book and very much in my real life as well, I found having really supportive teachers made a difference. One that wanted to see you to learn and thrive And very luckily for me, there was a program called English Second Language when I first arrived. So to have people that supported you when you felt you were so out of water was really brilliant. And I found having fantastic librarians as well, helping me to choose what books I think would suit me and help me learn English was also fantastic. I still remember those things as very, very positive As for the negative things, you're so young, you not only have your parental expectations, but you sort of take on responsibility for yourself to do well. And I just remember being scared was the biggest issue for me. Will I ever learn English properly? Will I ever be able to spell properly? And I just remember this one incident was little when I came home and I burst into tears and I said to my parents, "I, I can't spell anything. And they were like, why can't you spell? And I go, um, cupboard? Because cupboard's an odd word, isn't it? So they went to the English dictionary, they looked up the word and they helped me write it down. And I thought to myself, they want me to try so hard, but that's just like one word in like hundreds and thousands that I don't know. So naturally, there are language barriers and cultural differences to be navigated. But there's one scene that I found particularly affecting where Beijing is at the school store with her mother trying to purchase the supplies that she needs for her schoolwork. Is that based on a real incident? During that scene, the family go to the school supply shop and they try to buy stationery for when the um, two sisters start school. And the person at the counter just refuses to serve them. Beijing, being a child, has no idea why this is. And BG being even smaller is completely distracted, no idea. But mum, who knows exactly what's going on and why she's not being served, really takes it to heart and she grabs the girls and they leave without purchasing anything. Mm. This is actually something that did happen to us when we came to Australia at the school supply store. In hindsight, 
I do forgive everything that has happened to us because it was a different time. What I wanted to do by writing it in my book is to just hold up a mirror and say, look, this is what happened. The way in which Mama and Amar respond to the world they find unfamiliar and in some cases hostile is to stay indoors, almost becoming prisoners in their home. I've witnessed this with older generations and migrants who come to rely on the younger generation as intermediaries. I think it's something we should all be alert to if we want people to feel welcome, safe and have a sense of belonging. But it can be very true when you move, not necessarily countries, but even to a different place that unknown outside and you feel, well, maybe it's unsafe out there and you just revert back to staying inside. Do you think Amar's uh, deterioration can be put down partly to the move? I think so. I think the big change affected her. Also, with her problems, like Mama refused to let her outside of it, so I think that just exacerbated the problem as well. But the family really didn't know what to do because in our Chinese culture, it's an honour and a privilege and a, and a need to look after your parents. And they're struggling here with trying to do that and they just don't know what to do because there's no support of the wider family network there. A reminder to people listening that all four quarters of the moon is fiction, even though you are drawing heavily on personal experience. It raises an interesting question. Why choose to fictionalise your personal story? And where does the boundary lie between fact and fiction? I think naturally I'm a storyteller and I do want to tell stories with important messages and important morals. I find I just can't help but draw from what I know and from real experiences because when I write them and I think when people like you read them, they can tell it's something authentic. And I think that's the centre where I write from, where it's, where it's based on experience, but it's also fiction. Which brings me on to the relationship between writing and memory. You've already said you were very young. You were seven years old when you moved to Australia. I wondered whether memories started to come back to you in the process of writing, whether that helps to recover memories. It did, actually. I set out to write this book with the memories that I did have, but I found that as I wrote, new memories came to me, some of them very positive and also some of them quite negative as well. But as I remembered, I would start writing and threading it through the story. So I found it was a very interesting experience, and I think I learned more about myself by the end of it. Because there's a little quote here from Paging that sometimes things came and were gone faster than she could build memories from them, and that scared her. So it's interesting to think about how writing can help with the recovery of some of those things. Perhaps for children, you know, writing things down is a way of capturing memory. Definitely. It's very important. I think when you write, it triggers a different part of your brain than when you just think about something or you talk about something. Mm -hmm. And if I could encourage children to write, then I think that's one of my big goals. When you're writing from memory and you have living relatives, does it require special consideration? Do you, for instance, feel the need to share your writing before it's published? So with the adults in the book, I don't base them on anybody living, just out of respect. I think every single character in each of my books is just a facet of myself as a child and how I am as an adult and also like an imagined adult as well. 
Can we turn our attention to what it's like to live with a foot in two cultures, in your case, Chinese and Australian? What advantages does it bring? For me, I think it enriches my writing because I know two different worlds. So I think I feel like sometimes I'm either on a tightrope or I'm like a conduit going between two communities and threading together like positivity, which is what I hope I'm doing. I suspect there must be some losses too, as change inevitably means leaving some things behind. Is that true for you? Yeah, there's definitely losses as well. And I feel it sometimes on a day-to-day basis. I can't read or write Chinese. And that was at the expense of my Western education and at the expense of me learning English as well as I have today. So in a way, I feel like I'm neither of this world or that. That's one of the the saddest things where things from your culture start to fade a little bit, from your original culture. It, it happens, of course, because you have to integrate into your new environment. But sometimes when I'm in a bit of a reflective mood, I think about things like that and I do get a little bit sad of what I had to leave. There's a lot in All Four Quarters of the Moon about the traditions and the concept, for instance, of honour. And that must be quite a big adjustment. Tell us a little bit about that. I think a lot of the Chinese culture is based on honour and respect, how you have to respect your elders and your parents, and that's a big thing. And the fact that you've migrated to a new country, often for your benefit because of education, and how you have to carry that burden of repaying. You see in a lot of my books, I explore that theme. There was one thing that you said in the story that really touched me. It was about rules around hugging and touch, (laughs) Yes, Uh, but that these could be broken for the very young and the very old. Yes. I think like all rules, there's always outliers on either end. I like to think that even though my parents are traditional and still traditional, there are things that I can still get away with. I think we should talk a little bit about storytelling and folklore because that's a huge part of this novel as well. The narrative is interspersed with folklore and little stories. I wondered when that idea came to you to tell the story in this way. I thought it would be really interesting to have little stories in between that the sisters tell each other so we can see part of their world. I think it's important to recognise the little worlds that children build within the larger world of their parents and other adults that they live in and to really honour that and to go, you know, that's important. It may be a very small world you both have that's just made out of stories and bits of paper, but it's still really, really important because that's what I think helps you to grow. The stories that are told come from Chinese mythology. Were these told to you when you were younger or did you have a collection of stories or is it something that you've read as you've got older? So most of these stories were told to me verbally by my mother when I was little. So they're very precious to me. And I just love folk tales because like Western fables and fairy tales, they're stories to help you sort of understand the world in a really safe way. Although I thought I would check them before I wrote them. And I found out, I actually found out that one of the stories my mum was telling us was not even correct. (laughs) It's the one about the flood and the dragon boat. 
And I think my mum only knew half the story because she told it up to a point where things got really, really bad and then she always ended it. And me and my sister were like, that's the most depressing story we've ever heard. Like, what is the moral of this? And we just conceded to ourselves, well, maybe the world is just a horrible place and that's the moral. Later, I would find out that there was another part of the story, like a whole different part that did have a happy ending. And I just thought that was really funny. So that's something I put in the book. Do you have a favourite story from those myths? I think my favourite is probably the Zodiac, the 12 signs having a race to see who would finish the line and therefore they'll be part of the Chinese Zodiac. I, I just love that one. I'm going to ask you a few questions about that now and which Zodiac sign you are. Oh, I'm the goat. <laughs> oh, tell me about the goat. So apparently I'm down to earth, hardworking, and apparently also artistic. <laughs> so, so I like to think that's quite accurate of me. I think the story of the Chinese Zodiac is probably one of the more familiar stories across the world. And I have only just learned about the five elements. And so we're in the period now of the water rabbit. It's actually a black water rabbit. What do the other elements do? I guess it sort of determines what type of animal it is. So with the rabbit, which is usually soft and kind, and you've got water. So I think that means that it's a very malleable rabbit. So this year is going to be a lot of things blowing, fluidity. I like to think the black water rabbit means that you're a rabbit and you're swimming through the black water. No one can see you. So you just got to keep heading straight so that you don't get seen by the hunters above. And if you can do that, you'll survive the year. So we've talked about uh, your love of stories, but there's something else really important about them in the book, I think, and that is that stories help the sisters to overcome adversity. They create a little world together in order to sort of escape the difficulties of the wider world. And what they do is they tell stories and they actually create a world completely out of paper, little animals, their little home, and they spend time drawing and cutting in each other's company. And it's something they can do without even talking sometimes because they feel comfortable. They feel like they're protected in this world that they've created. And it gives them an opportunity, I think, to grow emotionally and creatively. When you were structuring the story, were you thinking about which stories go along with what's actually happening in the girls' everyday lives. Definitely. So you see that there's always a parallel in the myth they're telling to what's happening in the real life. And I like to think that in a way they're using the myth like a guide on how to survive the world. The story is told in the third person with a focus on Beijing's internal life. We have access to her thoughts and so we know what's going on below the surface. Even when she's quiet and not communicating verbally. But there is a pivotal moment when Paging finds her voice. I love that episode. I was cheering her on. Oh, that's wonderful, Nikki. So the birthday party is one of the turning points. Mum has dressed the two sisters. Well, Paging's firstly embarrassed that she has to take her little sister with her, but Mum says that's the only way you're gonna go. And they're both wearing these silk dresses that are identical, one big and one small. On the offset, she's very embarrassed. And she's never been to a Western like Australian party before. So she gets there. She wasn't just not quite sure about what happens, what do you do, what food is gonna happen. So she's quite worried. But there is a point 
where she starts talking to the other kids at the party and they make fun of the dress that she's wearing. But Paging, she finds her voice because she takes that, turns it on her head and instead makes the other kids jealous that they're not wearing this dress and they're not going to like a traditional Singaporean party. And I think that's the first point where she feels she can make friends with the rest of the class. And I wanted to write that in because I know that at some point, no matter how much you're struggling, you will find your voice. Do you recall a moment when you found your voice? I remember winning a writing contest and I thought to myself, I think I've got to the point where I can express myself and I'm being rewarded for it. So I must have reached a certain point. And to me, that was really exciting. You write your stories, I'm sure, primarily for children to read and enjoy them. But both books have been picked up by teachers as books to read in school. And as a result, they often spark lots of creative work. What sorts of things would you like to see teachers do to enhance and extend the experience of reading the book? I think most important to me would be just more conversation in the classroom about important topics like other cultures, migration in particular, and I think the sharing of stories between students as well. I couldn't agree more. A story that touches you will spark a thousand stories. It has been really interesting to talk to you today. I wonder whether you will read us out and perhaps tell us a little bit about what you've chosen to read. So I'm going to read one of the little stories that Biju and Paging tell each other. They hear these stories from either their mum or their grandmother and in the book they reinterpret it in a way that makes sense to them. And this story is about the monkey king and this is how it goes. Once upon a time there was a monkey that hatched out of an egg made from stone. He broke into the peach garden of immortality, went wild and ate all the peaches in it. He was in deep trouble because these peaches take a hundred years to ripen, said Biju, unfolding the paper orchard. But Buddha said the monkey could be forgiven if he could walk the length of Buddha's palm. Guess what happened? What happened? asked Peijing. Monkey didn't realise that Buddha's palm stretched on forever because Buddha did so himself. So Buddha put him under a mountain for 500 years to learn about patience. Cheeky monkey. Did he learn about patience? asked Peijing. No, said Biju. I think he just had lots of time to figure out who he was. Biju folded the orchard back up and stroked it lovingly. Shelley, thank you for talking to me. I hope we get the chance to talk again in the future. I'm sure there are many more books to come. Oh, I hope so. I feel like I have a thousand stories in me, but only limited time to write them. Thank you so much, Nikki, for having me.